The New Testament reading is found from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is a vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. 
Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This is a gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you for the love of Christ and for your spirit who dwells in and among us. We pray now that you would be with us and bless us as we sit with your scriptures. We pray that by your grace, we would be open to you and that you would be at work in our lives, forming us, renewing us, making us more and more into the image of your son, in whose name we pray, amen. Who are you becoming? Is that something that you think about often? That you're a person in process? That you're someone actually like on a trajectory toward becoming a particular version of yourself that isn't the only possible version? You're actually growing in a direction. Now, thinking about stuff like that is something that comes naturally to us when we're young, right? But it, but it fades, over time. I mean, just yesterday, all three of my kids made some sort of statement about what they want to be when they grow up. My daughter, Annie, my second grader, she said yesterday she wants to be a mechanical engineer. Her, uh, her school Lego League uh, team won a competition that they were in. She's inspired, and so Annie's feeling mechanical engineer as a trajectory. My son, Will, his kindergarten, uh, said that he wants to be a baseball player because Uh, You know, he plays t-ball for the teddy bears and is sort of dominating a sport in which there are no outs or wins or losses. But, um, and then my son Cooper, my three-year-old, wants to be the Incredible Hulk because he likes the color green and he likes to smash things. So it seems like reasonable fit. Um, But they have no trouble imagining themselves on a trajectory toward some version of themselves that's wildly different from who they are today. And I just have to admit that that does not come as naturally for me anymore, and it probably doesn't for you either. And that's understandable, right? Because obviously they're kids, and I'm not. For most of you, you're not. And just the basic knowledge of the way human development works, or the way the unfolding of any story works, you know, that would lead any of us to recognize that the way we ponder these questions of like, who will they become or how will they turn out with respect to, say, a four-week-old or a four-year-old or a 40-year-old are going to be shaped by very different ranges of possibilities, very differing degrees of mystery. Yet, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, how established you are, I would be willing to bet that all of the following statements are true of you, and I will admit up front that these are absolutely true of me, so no judgment here, but these, I would be willing to bet that all of these statements are true of every single one of us. Number one, you want more. You want more. You're just not, you're not fully satisfied with life as it is. 
Secondly, you aren't exactly as you pretend to be. Your outward appearance and your inner life don't match. They don't match as much as most people probably assume they do or as much as you wish they did. Also, you doubt that significant change is possible, right? I do. I mean, you suppose that the distance between who you are right now and the best realistic version of yourself is actually quite a small distance. And so we embark on small self-improvement projects, but we doubt that the real transformation is possible. And then lastly, you make at least occasional efforts toward self-improvement, right? Or at least occasional efforts toward personal growth. Maybe some of you, some of us do this as like a daily discipline thing. For others, it's more of a flash in the pan. But every one of us takes a stab at becoming more of whom we want to be. You're a person in process. So who are you becoming? And what's your process? That's another way of approaching the question that we spent a good bit of time this fall thinking about as we introduced the rhythms of renewal curriculum on spiritual practices. And we opened that with a question of what makes a human life beautiful and compelling and life-giving to others? Which, ha- which is a question we asked in two ways. Number one, what characterizes that life? Like, how would you describe it? And on the other hand, what cultivates that sort of life? How do you get it? How do you grow into it? And this morning, we also ask, as we pick up that question maybe where we left it in the fall and and, and bring it into some fresh conversational space, we can also add this question, and what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with any of that? What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with all of that? How does the resurrection of Jesus give us a vision for the kind of people we want to become and help us understand a process that cultivates that kind of formation? So over the past several weeks, we've been in this sermon series that we're calling the Resurrection Church as we begin to live into our new name, Resurrection Philadelphia, as we're celebrating this this Easter season of celebrating Jesus's resurrection. We're considering the significance and the implications of Jesus's resurrection from various angles. And we've repeatedly said throughout this series that the New Testament doesn't view Jesus's resurrection as a bizarre one-off. It's not like a random, isolated event, but it's actually the eruption of God's new normal into the midst of a broken and hurting world. Jesus' resurrection, as we've seen over the past weeks, it's the dawning of God's new creation in the midst of the old. It's the breaking into the present of God's promised future, which is a future world in which things are set right. Things are made whole. That the world that we long for, where justice and peace prevail, where life and love last, where every tear is wiped away and death is no more, that's the promised future of God. And the resurrection of Jesus is the intrusion of that future into the very present world in which we live. And this New Testament vision of the church, then, is this vision of a people who are united to this risen Jesus whose lives are organized around this risen Jesus and who are working out in our community a way of life that fits the new normal of God, that fits life as it ought to be, 
And of course, we stumble our way through that as the church. We're always, always falling short of that vision. It's an aspirational vision, but it's a profoundly hopeful one as well because it comes with the promise of God attached to it and it comes with the power of God animating it. The very spirit of God unleashed in the church to grow us up in the likeness of our risen Savior. And that world that we anticipate and the world we seek to embody, the life we seek to enact together as the church, is this life that fits the world that's coming. And that world is one where things like selfishness or greed or injustice or exploitation, slander, violence, oppression, these things have all been rooted out. They've been removed from that world, which is the picture of wrath that we get in this passage. I don't know if, if you cringed a little bit as that part was read. I know that's a word that's hard for us to hear and also the list of vices or practices that often follow it um, can feel a little bit cringeworthy and they can, for many of us, probably trigger experiences of shame or guilt or hurt or we've felt judged or we've seen the church treat others horribly um, by pointing fingers and naming names. And so we can stumble upon verses like this and recoil a bit. We can even wish they weren't in our Bible, or we can sometimes even pretend they're not in our Bible and try to read around them. But I would just suggest that perhaps one reason we detest the word wrath so much is not only because we've seen it abused so much, that's a huge part of it, but it's also because we misunderstand it pretty deeply. The picture of wrath that we get as we take the whole story of Scripture and you read it toward Jesus who comes as the full revelation of God and you see in Jesus what God is really like. The clearest picture of what God is really like is Jesus who embraces people who fit every single category that's, that's labeled there or named there in that list of things, right? Jesus who embraces each of us in our own sinfulness. Jesus who heals us in our woundedness. He loves broken people. And that's what God is like. And the wrath, if you want to think of it as almost like a chemotherapy that eradicates the horrors from the world, that treats the cancer of God's creation, the things that choke out life, all the ways that we live away from God and against one another, all the things that we do, that we participate in, that we lean into, that, that short-change life, that choke out our own life and the lives of others, where we use one another instead of loving one another. God is removing those things from the world. He's removing those things from us. And the invitation of the church is one to be caught up in this vision of life and the risen Christ, not where we're finger pointing or name calling or, or judging others, but where we're actually surrendering to that love of God who wants to transform us from within and call us into a way of life that fits the world that is to come. And the clearest picture that we see of God revealed is that in Jesus who embraces us right where we are who tells us stories of the prodigal father, if you will, running after his prodigal son to embrace one who has gone astray. The wrath that we see in the scriptures 
is a function of God's love for his creation that he's committed to preserving at all costs. And it's a picture of the consent of God who's not gonna treat us like robots, right? But who's going to woo us to himself, invite us, persuade and enable us to embrace him, yet also allow us that freedom to come or not. It's love and it's consent. I think C.S. Lewis was famous for saying there are two prayers, right, in the world. One that prays to God, thy will be done, and one in which God says, thy will be done to you and me. And the prayer of faith is the one that seeks the will of God. I came across a really beautiful illustration in a book uh, by Brad Jersak called uh, A More Christ-Like God. And he describes the, the wrath of God through this parable of a hammer-throwing contest where he and his friend, or it may have been his brother, were, were, were throwing these hammers. And, and their fathers, I guess it was a friend, their two fathers came and they said, don't throw the hammers, which sounded both to them like, you know, a stifling command and also a daring invitation to do just that. So what do these boys do? Of course, they start throwing the hammers. And, and, and Brad tells the story of how he threw his hammer way up, straight up in the air, and it came crashing down on his friend's head. And right then and there, he was met with the inner wrath of the natural consequences of his own foolishness. Yet the fathers of the two sons met them with nothing but compassion and care. It wasn't an I told you so moment. It was a we need to take care of you. I love you. Let's get help. The picture of God that we see in Jesus is a God who invites us to choose wisely and well and then embraces us when we don't, who woos us to a life in him where we're becoming more and more like him, putting on a life that fits the world that he is making because it's good for us and it's good for the world. Yet every single one of us fails to appropriate that fully, and every single one of us can know the mercy and the embrace of God, even in those places where we fall short most grievously, most disappointingly. The Apostle Paul in this chapter of Colossians uses this image of changing clothes to describe this work of formation. He talks about putting off the old and putting on the new, and he's talking about the old self, the old creation self and putting on the new creation self. And he talks about it in terms of changing clothes. And this is a passage I often use in wedding homilies because it's a situation, right, where when you're at a wedding, you're dressed for the occasion. And the bride and the groom are typically dressed for the occasion. The wedding party is dressed for the occasion. And it's clearly this moment that's glorious, that's important, that's significant. And so there's been some intentionality about preparing. There are decorations. They're nice outfits. And it's a moment where it becomes a, a lived illustration of this idea of dress for the occasion. And the Apostle Paul is using this image of taking off old dirty clothes and putting on new ones that fit the occasion of new creation, that fit the occasion of resurrection life. And he talks about what it is that we are to put on, right? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive, just as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all, clothe yourselves with love. It's the idea of dressing ourselves in the new self, 
dressing ourselves in the resurrection self that God has created in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. So a couple of thoughts about this resurrection and the church's formation. What does resurrection have to do with it? How does this work? How does God meet us and form us more and more into the likeness of Christ? And how do we as a church need to think about our formation if we are going to take seriously this work of growing up into the likeness of Christ? And the first thought that I would share is just simply this, that resurrection formation is actually, seriously, transformation. David Benner in his book, Surrendered to Love, says this. He says, unlike the message of self-improvement gurus who offer the extra bits of help we think we need to finish off our personal renovation projects, Jesus' offer is abundant life based on death and rebirth. Jesus' offer is abundant life based on death and rebirth. It's a grander vision for our transformation than any self-help agenda can accomplish. But Jesus invites us into this dying and rising with him of actually putting to death the old self and all of our selfish ways, all of our self-driven ways, and to clothe ourselves with this love with this new creation self that is being renewed. If you look at uh, verse 10, Paul says there very closely, he says, Having, have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. It's actually the new self, this one that God has created in Christ that is the one in vision of being renewed. And he says, put on the clothes of this character. This is our work of formation. And that's true not just individually, where we naturally probably most of us go, as we think, but also communally. Look at the description in verse 11 of the community that's practicing this. In that renewal, there's no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And so you see this tags on very seamlessly to the passage that Scott preached on last week about community and what God has created in Christ is this community where God has torn down the dividing wall between humans and God, between humans and one another. That old creation that is fractured every which way by all the different agendas, all the different visions of the good life, all the different competitive factions, that what God has done is he's entered a world that is so broken up, so divided, so polarized, so rejecting of the other. And he's come to do a new thing, to die beneath the weight of all that division, to actually suffer the slings and arrows of all our egregious ways of being human brokenly in this world and to rise into a new way of being human to embrace across all of those divisions and to make one family in the earth of all of us, that we would be siblings and not competitors. And our formation work in the church, our resurrection formation in the church is to practice that and put that on. 
to let the peace of Christ rule, to let the word of Christ dwell, and to practice in the community this putting on of the new self, that we would become a different kind of people, a different kind of family, and as members of it, different kind of individuals. So resurrection formation is really and truly transformation. Secondly, resurrection formation is really about becoming who we already are in Christ. If you look at the way the Apostle Paul starts this section, he says, so if you have been raised with Christ, and then goes on to say all the other stuff. But that's his assumption at the beginning, is if you have been raised with Christ, if this is true of you, if the resurrection of Jesus is real, and if God has made you a participant in that resurrection, if that's true of you, then live like this. Practice that. Become who you are, this new creation. Who are you in Christ? What is your identity? You know, Henry Nouwen says that there are three core lies of identity that we tend to fall for. I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what other people say that I am. And that each of us falls for these lies. We tend to live into these lies. We tend to try to strive for some sense of self, some sense of belonging by way of getting more things or doing more or managing an image and reputation so that we hear the praise, the applause, what have you, the affirmation. And we seek a sense of self and we seek a sense of security in these ways. But you are not what you do and you are not what you have and you are not what other people say about you. That's the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is that there's another word pronounced over your life, that your identity is not something that you achieve, but it's something you receive as a gift from him. And who you are is God's beloved child. You are God's beloved. The beloved son of God, Jesus, died and rose again, has embraced you. You're joined to him. And that same word over the son, you are my child and you I'm well pleased, that is spoken over you. And so you don't live into the world from a place of scarcity where you're trying to get an identity or security. You live into the world out of a place of abundance, grounded in a love that you could never earn or achieve for yourself, but it is lavished on you nonetheless because God loves you and that's who you are. You are God's beloved, raised with Christ, new creation, which means you are not most basically your sin. You are not most basically your suffering. You are not most basically your failure or your success. You are not your addiction. You are not your reputation. You are not your net worth. You are not your appearance. You are not your resume. You are not your academic pedigree. You are not whatever you managed to accomplish in your last week of work. And you are certainly not what anybody says you are in this room or out there in the world. You don't live under the tyranny of any of those false identities. You are God's beloved. You are raised with Christ. And the resurrection formation of the church is to begin to live out of the deep, deep wellspring of life 
that is the love of God that is fully yours. Become who you are in Christ. God's beloved, put on that new self. What are the ways in which you're living that don't fit that identity, that don't fit that world? Change those clothes. Put on the new self. Resurrection formation is about becoming who you are in Christ. Thirdly, resurrection formation is a journey of descent, not ascent. This is pretty important because it's the exact opposite of all the other self-help strategies that exist. You know, if you pick up any self-help books or any more like, you know, efficiency, productivity books, what are they all about? They're all about like climbing the ladder one more step, right? Like ascending to some higher version of yourself, becoming more or whatever. But resurrection actually functions by a completely opposite logic because resurrection formation is a process that necessarily involves death. You think about just any other survival strategy, it's all about avoiding death, right? A resurrection strategy plunges headlong into it. Again, if I may quote David Benner, he, um, in the same book, he says, Christian spirituality is a journey of descent, not ascent, although we sometimes treat it as a spirituality of self-improvement through movement up a ladder of successive approximations to holiness. It is a spirituality of following Jesus on a journey of self-emptying. It is a path of dying to everything within us that is false so that we might discover and become the truth of our being in Christ. Self-emptying is the core reality underlying every moment of Jesus's human journey. But here's the thing about why descending is so hard for us. Every single one of us has suffered in our lives, right? Every single one of us comes from a family of origin where we've been loved imperfectly. My kids as well. We have childhood wounds traumas. We have adult wounds and traumas. And as we've learned to function in a world that hurts, we develop strategies for survival of defending ourselves. And so every one of us carries around defended parts, if you will, little, little self-defense ninjas or gurus that live in us that block against threats. Because we live with our wounds and our survivor parts have developed in there because we've needed them. They also make it profoundly difficult to explore and understand those wounds because everything in us says fight, flight, or freeze when we encounter anything that triggers any of them. So exploring those, plunging to the depths of those things is deeply difficult work. But it's that self-knowledge, it's entering the wound. It's entering those shadowy places in our lives and actually learning to befriend them and bring them openly into the light and love of God. That we begin to know that healing. That we begin to know how the love and grace of God actually touch those parts of us and not just the presentable parts that we like to bring out in public but the whole you, 
all of your story, all that you carry, all your thoughts. God knows and loves your whole self to the depth of your being. And the work of resurrection formation is going on that journey with Jesus, the self-emptying journey, that pilgrimage to the bottom of your soul, to the depth of your being, where God meets you, loves you, and heals you, and then raises you to new life, to live as healed and a healer in the world. Resurrection formation is a profound journey, but it travels in the opposite direction of the self-improvement. It goes down, not up. It's a humbling journey. And it's in the humbling that we come to know ourselves as sinners. And as we do that, we become to know the grace of God, particularly that touches each and every one of those places. That unfailing love. You can't freak God out. You just can't. He already knows. He's already there. And he's inviting you to go there with him so that you too may know the depth and mercy that is for you. Put on that love. That is the resurrection formation journey. And just lastly, I'll say this, that resurrection formation is all about love. Above all else, the Apostle Paul says, put on love. Above all else, put on love. Which raises the question, what kind of love? And in our gospel reading, Jesus so beautifully says, no greater love has anyone than this, but to lay down one's life for one's friends. A love that prefers the other. A love that is open. A love that doesn't use others for your own enjoyment, but simply seeks to impart life to another in love. That kind of love is the love with which God has loved you in Christ. Let that sink in. God has loved you with that kind of reckless abandon, that no holds barred, self-emptying, self-sacrificial, entirely for you love that props up your life that liberates you, that empowers you to do the same with others. And Jesus says, as I have loved you, so love one another. Will you let that love of God land in your soul? Will you just open yourself to be loved by God with that kind of love? It's a vulnerable thing to do because it requires opening those places that you would rather keep closed. It requires opening up to the light, the shadowy places that you would rather keep in the dark. But if you will open yourself up to the love of God, what you will find is that his mercy is boundless, his love is tender, his healing is transformative, and he will remake you, he will remake me, and he will remake us if we go on the journey vulnerably, humbly, boldly, embracing one another, crossing those divisions, moving down with Jesus and casting ourselves upon his grace that he would lift us up, 
that he would defend us, that he would raise us from the dead. As we do that work, we will grow into the likeness of Jesus and we will become a picture of the hope that is the hope of our lives, that is the hope of the world. May God give us grace to be so formed in the likeness of our Savior that we would become formed healers in this city. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.